The late 1970s in England was a bit of a bad scene. There was incredibly high inflation, along with soaring unemployment and low economic growth. So people wanted a change. And on May 4th, 1979, they did something about it. Something that was truly incredible from a historical perspective. On that day, the people elected Margaret Thatcher to become the next prime minister of the United Kingdom. And I know, I know, Margaret Thatcher is an extremely controversial figure. And if you want to know why, just go ahead and Google her. But regardless of what you think about her, she was an absolutely remarkable person when you consider her as a woman of firsts. She was the first female prime minister of the United Kingdom. In fact, she was the first female head of state of any G7 nation. When she became prime minister, many people in Britain wondered whether a woman would be strong enough to do this very difficult and important job. And she showed them the answer to that question was unequivocally yes. The other day I was reading about her, and it got me thinking, wouldn't it be cool to look into some women of firsts in the climbing world? So I've compiled this list, 10 incredible women of firsts in climbing. And by the way, I'm not saying that these are the best or the biggest, I mean, that's for you to decide. But they're all interesting stories, and I promise that you're going to learn about some people and facts that you probably haven't heard of before. As usual, I'm your host, James Howell, and this is A Brief History of Climb. Let's dive in. We're going to start by going way back. Around 200 years ago, climbing as we know it today hardly existed. There was no sport climbing or bouldering or trad climbing. Slowly, the great peaks in the European Alps were being climbed, but as one might assume, the few people who did climb were pretty much exclusively men. This changed, however, in 1808, when a peasant woman who ran a tea shop from Chamonix was invited by a local guide to climb Mont Blanc, the highest mountain in the Alps. They encouraged her to join them because she was strong and a good walker and, according to them, a stout-hearted wench. They also promised that the climb would make her famous, so she decided to go. The climbing went okay until a high camp around two-thirds up the mountain. After that, things became extremely hard and exhausting. She slowly became delirious and short of breath, and then her eyesight started going. By the time that they were close to the summit, she could not see anything, and she actually asked her companions to leave her behind in a crevasse in order to end her misery. But, of course, they didn't do that. On July 14, 1808, she stood atop Mont Blanc, the first woman to climb the highest mountain in the Alps. Oh, and that promise of fame, it actually came true. After her record-baking climb, she became a climbing celebrity. She was known as Marie de Montblanc, and she wrote about her experience and amassed a small fortune. But despite Marie Paradis' incredible climb, unfortunately the doors were not yet blown open for women climbers. 
To be clear, throughout the 1800s, mountain climbing was growing in popularity. It was leading to what was known as the golden age of mountaineering in the second half of the 19th century. Of course, you can assume that the names from this period read like the guest list to an exclusive gentleman's club. But there were some bold women who were in on the action at this time as well. For number two, let's look at the legendary Mary Walker. She was originally from England, and she developed rheumatism at a young age and was recommended by her doctor to go to the Alps to treat it. Apparently, the fresh air would help. And I suppose it did, because shortly after arriving, she became a diehard mountaineer. Over 98 expeditions, Walker clocked up 29 4,000-meter peaks and 16 female first ascents. The whole time, she never wore trousers. Instead, she was always climbing in skirts or dresses, and she would also bring champagne and cakes with her on climbs in order to help with the altitude. Her most famous ascent was in 1871, when she was the first woman to climb the Matterhorn, which is not as high as Mont Blanc, but it is technically much more challenging. She ended up retiring from climbing in 1879. Our third extends out from Marie Walker. One of her protégés was a young woman named Elizabeth Hawkins Whitshed, but to the climbing community, she was known by a different name, Lizzie LeBlonde. She had numerous first ascents and particularly was known as a bold climber. It's as if fear wasn't really an emotion that she felt. But despite her successes, she was prohibited from joining the male-dominated alpine clubs throughout Europe because she was a woman. And at the time, these alpine clubs were incredibly important. They would help you get sponsorship and support to go on expeditions. So by not being part of the club, she had a hard time finding the resources in order to go on these climbs. By the way, this policy of not allowing women into alpine clubs, it lasted well into the 20th century. In fact, the Scottish Mountaineering Club accepted its first woman in 1992, which is frankly embarrassing. I mean, come on, Scottish Mountaineering Club. Lizzie wanted to create a dedicated and safe space for women climbers. So in 1907, she created the first ever women's climbing organization. It was known as the Ladies Alpine Club. And as it turns out, it was incredibly popular and the group thrived. I mean, go figure. It turns out that women are interested in climbing and they're pretty damn good at it. In the following years, more women's climbing clubs were created. Collectively, they defied convention and proved that women were capable of amazing things in the mountains. All right, now let's fast forward a bit to the age of technical rock climbing and to our fourth incredible woman of firsts. In 1969, a young woman left school and went to Yosemite looking for adventure. Her name was Beverly Johnson, and she threw herself into the male-dominated scene of Camp 4. She wanted to rub elbows with the greatest climbers of the day and learn from them. And she really did. Over the next few years, she drastically improved at climbing. But despite this constant improvement and her climbing at a very high level, she wasn't given the respect that she deserved. At this time, I have to say that the sexism in the valley was abject and in your face. According to Jim Bridwell, Yosemite legend, quote, 
If she could do it, it was 5'9". If she couldn't, it was 5'10". Just a quick reminder that these grades were cutting edge at the time. Beverly Johnson didn't agree, and after her first couple of seasons in the Valley, she was regularly leading 5'10 and higher. But Bridwell stuck with his notions. When Johnson repeated the first pitch of New Dimensions, a route that Bridwell himself pioneered and rated 5'11, he downgraded it to 5'10. Beverly didn't care. They could say whatever they want. She was just going to keep pushing the envelope. In 1972, she joined Yosemite Search and Rescue, or YOSAR, which was an extreme rarity for women at the time. But she wanted to do something bigger, so she convinced her friend, Sybil Hechtel, to go and have a try at an ascent of El Capitan, the largest face in the valley. And they were going to do it manless. It was hard going. This was before the age of cams, so they were aid climbing with stoppers and hexes and other types of passive protection. They were also hauling bags heavier than they were. They felt a ton of pressure to make it to the top. Beverly would never live it down if she got rescued by her own colleagues. They ended up using this pressure to their advantage. It pushed them forward. Here's a quick clip from Sybil, her partner, talking about the climb years later. I think they were taking bets on us. I think there was a betting pool down there, and I think half the uh, people, or maybe more than half, were betting we were going to make it, and I think the rest of the people were betting that we weren't going to make it. You know what? She says, we can't fail. We can't come down. We can't turn around. It's not an option. We were going to get to the top. We knew we were going to get to the top. After seven days on the wall, they made it, becoming the first all-female team to make it to the top of El Capitan. They named their ascent Walls Without Balls. But she wasn't finished there. Five years later, she upped the ante when Big Wall Bev became the first woman to climb El Cap solo. Over 10 days, she climbed the dihedral wall and ended all doubts that she was anything but an elite climber. Speaking of Beverly Johnson's first solo of El Capitan, the climbing legend Lynn Hill says, quote, It was inspiring to learn about this exceptional woman who showed such courage and confidence to stick it out on her own in the male-dominated world of Yosemite climbing. Lynn Hill was part of the next generation. She started climbing in 1975 at the age of 14. She was athletic from a young age, doing things like gymnastics and other sports. And she was also quite small, 5'2", and only around 100 pounds. Soon after she started climbing, she found herself in Camp 4 as well, a place that she describes in her autobiography as, quote, terribly macho. Despite having a body type that was far different than the men who dominated the crags, it quickly became clear that she was naturally an incredible climber. She was smooth and strong and extremely bold. Of course, in this short segment, we're not nearly going to be able to cover all of Lynn Hill's amazing firsts and accomplishments. I mean, we can definitely save that for a future, possibly multi-part episode. But let's go over some of the big ones. After honing her craft in America during the 1970s and 80s, Lynn packed her bags and headed to the limestone cliffs of France, and she absolutely fell in love with not only the amazing climbing, but also living in a new and distinctly different culture than the USA. 
Lynn was undoubtedly one of the best climbers in the world at the time, but she still faced a ton of discrimination from the men who tended to physically and psychologically dominate the climbing scene. In fact, one of the top climbers in the world at the time, Jibé Trebeau, who I've talked about previously during episode two of this podcast, after sending one of his test pieces in France, a 514A called Mass Critique, he said that no woman would ever climb a route of that grade. And you can probably hear me chuckling because it's kind of hard to say that with a straight face. Lynn promptly hopped on a flight to France and got on the route, and she sent it in less tries than it took Gibet, making her the first woman to climb 514A in the world. By the early 90s, Lynn was bored with the burgeoning competition circuit and some of the sport climbing in France, and she was also recovering from a near-death accident, so she decided to return to her roots in Yosemite Valley. It's there that she did her most famous climb, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. She was the first person, man or woman, to free climb El Capitan by its most famous route, the nose. It's hard to put into words how astonishing this ascent was. If you are somehow unaware, Google it. In a monumental effort over the next four days, she did what literally every climber in the world thought was completely impossible. Famously, after topping out the route, she told the men of the climbing world, It goes, boys. The following year, she upped her achievement even more, by doing the route again in under 24 hours, the first person to free climb El Cap in a day. Before we leave Lynn for the day, here's a great interview that she did on the Today Show in 2003, where she talked about climbing the nose and what it means to her. And I'll mention that at the time, which was 10 years on from her ascent, it had still not been repeated. I got to the top and it was just like, I can't believe it. I actually did it. (laughs) And even if you're not a climber, just the fact that a woman did something that the men had never been able to do in a male-dominated sport, that's like, that says something. Anyone can relate to that. And that's what I wanted. And today she is... Okay, let's move on to number six. It would be fair for people to assume that Lynn Hill during the mid to late 1980s was the number one female climber in the world, but it would actually be incorrect to say that. She wasn't the only leading woman at the time. The fact is that throughout the mid and late 80s, Lynn Hill actually had a kind of rival in another behemoth in the sport, Catherine Desteville. Catherine got an early start at climbing. As a young girl in France in the late 1960s, her parents would take her and her siblings to Fontainebleau, the incredible bouldering area outside of Paris, to spend their days playing on the boulders. By her teenage years, she would go there on her own and with friends, regularly taking the famous 823 train from the city to the boulders, and she was really learning the subtleties of the sandstone problems. Her parents had no idea that by age 17, she was already climbing bold and hard north faces in the Alps, very far away from home. But in her early 20s, Catherine, maybe because she had already been climbing for so long and started to get burnt out, she began to lose motivation. 
she started playing all-night poker and smoking endless cigarettes and apparently putting on weight. Luckily, this period didn't last long, only about a year or so before The Rock called her back. She threw herself into climbing again, and the latent skill that she had built in the boulders during her youth came back alive. By 1985, she decided to become a professional climber, making it her only focus in her life. The timing of her return was perfectly aligned with a brand new climbing discipline, competitions. 1985 would see the world's first international climbing competition. It was named Sport Rocchia, and it was held outdoors on the limestone cliffs that surrounded the small Italian village of Bardonecchia. But initially, Catherine had no interest whatsoever of climbing competitions. They seemed to go against the purity of rock climbing. In fact, she signed a petition that was going around with other pro climbers refusing to take part. But as the competition approached, she had a change of heart, and she decided to enter. To be clear, this competition was not a great scene, and if you want to know why, again, I recommend that you do some googling. But regardless of any of that, by the end of the three-day competition, Catherine Desteville outclimbed all of the other women and stood atop the podium, officially becoming the first woman in the world to win an international climbing competition. Throughout the rest of the 80s, along with Lynn Hill, she was considered one of the best rock climbers in the world. Between 1985 and 1990, she twice was the first woman to achieve the next grade. She did the first 513 A-B in 1985, and then in 1988, she became the first woman to climb 513 C. By 1990, however, she was losing interest in both competitions and sport climbing, and she threw herself into alpinism, where she continued to amaze the world by climbing the hardest peaks in the Alps and the Himalaya. If you've never seen Catherine Desteville climb, hop on YouTube and treat yourself to seeing some of the most elegant climbing in the history of the sport. Okay, let's move on to number seven, and I'm really excited for this one. I want you to strap in because this might be one of the most amazing climbers that you possibly have never heard of. Hozun Beresiartu. Born in 1972, she was a Basque Spanish climber. The Basque country is an autonomous community in northern Spain that is culturally distinct from the rest of the nation, and it also happens to have incredible limestone cliffs with endless climbing opportunities. Hozun began climbing at age 17 after seeing a TV show showing two women climbing in, France, in France's Verdun Gorge. Later on, she met her partner, and he was already an extremely strong climber, climbing around 513D, and at this time, she was climbing at around 511. By relentless training and extreme determination, she caught up with him. For a brief period, she dabbled in competitions, which were growing in popularity in the early 90s, but by this time, the comps were on artificial walls, and she felt that on artificial walls, she couldn't develop her full potential, so she began to concentrate on local cliffs in Spain. By 1996, she had become the strongest woman in the country. 
Her first big first came in 1998, when she sent Honky Tonky, a burly 8C or 514B route in her local Basque country. This made her the first woman in the world to climb a route at that grade, and she was just getting started. After climbing several more 514B routes, in 2000, she climbed the extension to Honky Tonky, which upped the grade to 8C+, or 514C, another first for women. The following year, she sent another 8C+, in Italy, fortifying her reign as the strongest woman in the world. But she just kept going. She wanted to be the first woman to climb 9A, or 514D. She trained for an entire year with that single goal in mind. And then she traveled to Switzerland to a sport crag called St. Loop that had small crimpy holds that suited her style perfectly. The crag was home to Switzerland's first 9A, Bain de Seine, put up in 1993 by legendary boulderer Fred Nicole. In 2001, she achieved her goal. She climbed Ban de Sang. But, unfortunately, there was controversy surrounding the grade, with some people saying it was actually 8C+, and not 9A. And this was devastating. It was such an incredible achievement to have a tiny asterisk above it noting the possible downgrade. So she kept going. In 2004, she traveled to Japan and climbed another 9A. Then she kept training and she went back to Switzerland the following year and sent another even harder Fred Nicole route, Bambaluna 9A slash 9A plus. This grade would not be repeated by another woman for 10 years and it left zero doubt that she was the best female climber in the world with countless firsts to her name. Okay, I want to share one last totally unbelievable thing about Hozun. She wasn't even a full-time climber. Throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, she, she sold insurance and investments for a Spanish company, which I think is just absolutely incredible. She was effectively a weekend warrior. I'm going to finish with this quote from Planet Mountain in 2001. Quote, in short, from 1998 to 2005, Berezi hegemony on rock was absolute. With these red points and with her first female 8B plus on-site completed in 2006, Berezi reduced the gender gap on multiple occasions, inspiring thousands of other climbers. In addition to these physical achievements, it's worth dwelling on how they were carried out always with absolute modesty, and always with a smile. Ooh, I just got some goosebumps as I was saying that. We're on the home stretch, so let's move on to number eight, the fascinating story of Katie Brown being the first woman to on-site 513D. In 1999, Katie Brown was 18 years old and was known as a young phenom of the sport. After only two years of climbing, she had already won three national titles. She started climbing on the overhanging sandstone of Kentucky's Red River Gorge, and in April 1999, she returned and tried a new route that her friend Bill Ramsey had recently put up. The route was Omaha Beach, named after the harrowing World War II battle during the D-Day invasion of Normandy. This thing is hard. 
39 meters of extremely steep climbing with virtually no rests. It's considered a quintessential Red River Gorge line. The route was cutting-edge difficulty for the time, but Bill never told her the grade, and Katie never asked. She figured it was somewhere in the upper 512 region, possibly even a warm-up for other routes on the wall. So she gets on it, and as she's climbing, everyone at the crag stops and watches. The area, known as the motherlode, becomes silent. Bill and his friends watched with mouths wide open as Katie cruised up to the crux, a shelf of poor holds with really long reaches, and she climbed up and down multiple times trying to figure out how to do it. According to Bill, quote, Eventually, she performed some sequence that made no sense to me, using holds that made no sense to me, but got her on the final headwall. While she was climbing, her mother was belaying, completely oblivious to what was happening, sometimes short-roping Katie when she tried to clip. It was totally insane. Eventually, Katie clipped the anchors, and the crag erupted with applause. When she got to the ground, Bill told her that the route was rated 513D, and that she probably just made history as the first woman to climb that grade on-site, which was absolutely correct. But interestingly, you don't see this climb listed as the first 513D on-site. In the year after Katie climbed it, several holds on the route broke and it is now rated 514A. But regardless of what the history books may say, this somewhat accidental record-breaking ascent was incredible and it was just uh, it's also just a cool story. Before we move on, here's one final quote from Bill Ramsey about Katie's ascent. Quote, In reality, all of us at the Red were awestruck by Katie and thrilled to see her outperform us with such ease. She was like a comic book hero, a tiny and unassuming young girl, but one with superpowers who completely dominated a macho kick-ass scene. Katie was part of a new generation of climbers who unlocked the power of bouldering as a shortcut to extreme power and strength. And that leads right into our next woman of firsts. This woman came completely out of left field for most of the climbing world. Uh, well, let's say the climbing world outside of the island of Japan. I'll set the stage. By 2012, bouldering, something that for years was considered only training for real climbing, had come into its own as a mainstream climbing discipline. There were some people who only bouldered. They never even put on a rope. They just focused on bouldering. And this was shown by the flurry of activity that was going on in the bouldering world at the time. 2010 saw the first ascent of a V13 problem by a woman. It was American Angie Payne. And this was an incredible ascent in its own right. And there were plenty of strong women who were actively working on breaking the barrier to V14. And the field was super strong, along with Payne, famous climbers like Alex Puccio, Lisa Rands, and Anna Storr were the best bets for making the jump into that V14 grade. Very few people knew that in Japan, a woman named Tomoko Ogawa had quietly been working on the same project for more than three years. 
The name of the route is Catharsis. It's located in the mountains of Japan, just north of Tokyo, and it's a long, almost horizontal roof problem that was put up by legendary Japanese boulderer Dai Koyamada in 2005. The grade was confirmed by America's own Daniel Woods, who repeated the problem and confirmed the extreme difficulty. Over three years, Tomoko had visited the problem around 40 times, and she made more than 200 attempts at the boulder. She was slowly making progress, but her biggest challenge were the powerful overhanging pocket moves shortly after the start of the problem. These moves were long and dynamic, both of which were anti-styles for Tomoko. So after watching a DVD of Daniel Wood's training, she started training in the exact same way that he trained in the video, campusing and doing fingertip pull-ups and intense core strengthening. On the 20th of October, 2012, magic happened. She managed to link the powerful start with the dynamic end to the problem, and she stood atop the boulder. The news of this climb spread like wildfire across the climbing world. The first woman to climb V14 was Tomoko Ogawa. Plenty of people thought that the ascent came out of thin air, but the truth couldn't be farther from that. Tomoko earned every single inch of that boulder over the previous three years. And just like that, we are at our final woman of firsts. Thanks so much for sticking with me. For the finale, we're going to look at something that I would say isn't only an incredible first, but it is also one of the greatest historical events in the history of competitive sport. The highest stage in competition bouldering is the World Cup, and in the late 2010s, the field was totally stacked with amazing climbers like Akio Noguchi, Fanny Jibei, and Shauna Coxie. But entering the scene in 2015 was a young Janja Garnbrett. She was 16 years old and hailing from Slovenia. She ended up finishing 7th that season, and you could say that she was really just adapting to the new level of competition. Janja was a rare breed of climber that excelled in both lead and bouldering, and she would win the Lead World Cup from 2016 to 2018. But she wanted to win the Bouldering World Cup, so in the off-season after 2018, she made bouldering her biggest focus in her training. And this led to her raising a bar in 2019 that honestly may never be crossed again. In one of the greatest showings of form, Janja Garnbrett was the first person, man or woman, to sweep the Bouldering World Cup. She won every single competition. But when you look deeper at it, it's even more impressive because it wasn't even close. That season, there was a total of 78 boulder problems over six events. Quick reminder, these are hard boulders. They are often in the double digits of difficulty and climbers have only four minutes to top a problem. It's incredibly hard not only to figure out how to climb them, but also to manage your time and energy. Yanya topped 74 out of 78 problems, aka 95% of the problems that were put in front of her that year she finished, many of them flashes. Here's the incredible last moments of her season as she tops the final boulder of the last competition. She then drops to the mat with her head in her hands, weeping. 
Yanni Garmret slapping out with the right hand and the left. Yanni Garmret's headed for the top in Vale. She's headed for the history books. She's clean swept the season. Yanni Garmret has won every Boulder World Cup in 2019. It's never been done before. She's been made to work for it, but every time she finds a way. First woman to win World Cup seasons in two disciplines. First woman to win World Championships in two seasons. And now the first climber in the history of the sport to clean sweep a season. There are some records out there that she still hasn't broken, but she's coming for them. Yanya Gambre is going to take this sport to places we can barely imagine. She is 20 years old and she is redefining what is possible. And that's it. Thanks for listening to A Brief History of Climb. I found a ton of cool sources and content while making today's episode, and I'll share all of it in the show notes. I hope that you get inspired to look more deeply into these amazing women and their achievements. And I'll be back before too long with some more incredible history from our favorite sport. Once again, this is James Howell, and thank you for listening.